Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller, and on the show, this week's News from Strange Places. Live from your street, it's your neighborhood news. It's not gossip if we call it news. Good evening, I'm Charles Kinney. And I'm Constance Walker. And here are tonight's biggest stories from our incredibly small neighborhood. Earlier today, an unknown car was seen turning around in someone's driveway. This poorly filmed footage captured by the homeowner shows the exact moment the mysterious car fled the property. A lone voice of reason suggested the person was simply lost, but everyone else agrees the motorist was definitely looking for a house to break into and we should all continue to assume the absolute worst. In other news, the search for a local resident's cat continues. If you have any information regarding the whereabouts of Mr. Pickles, please contact the Glass family immediately, preferably before 9 p.m. if it's a school night. On the edge of town, construction crews are currently clearing out land for what sources say will be a new olive garden, or a red lobster, or maybe even an outback steakhouse. Who are those sources, Charles? Some guy on Facebook. Sounds reliable. It's time for a traffic update with our very own Larry Rush. How's it looking out there, Larry? It's still business as usual out here, Constance. We have no major delays on the road or highway, but some of y'all driving way too fast. Kids live here, and there's still some confusion regarding the median crossover at the entrance point to the neighborhood. Apparently, we have no clue how that works. Any idea when those conditions will improve, Larry? Until they put a traffic light there? Never. All right, thank you, Larry. And now for a special investigative report, we join Randall Rhodes live in the field. What do you have for us, Randall? I'm standing outside my residence at 8602 Mill Springs Lane where all of the lights just went off. I tried flipping the switch multiple times, but nothing happened. Did all the lights blow at once or is the power out? Only time will reveal the cause. Hey, Randy, your lights go out? Yeah, yours? Yeah. New information suggests the power is out in the neighborhood. Now I'm going to forget about that in about five seconds when I walk back inside my dark house and try to turn the lights on like an idiot. Charles. Riveting stuff. In related news, paperwork obtained from my own mailbox shows that my power bill was five times more than the usual. Uh, hold that unsolicited rant, Constance. I believe we have some breaking news for an update on the construction we told you about earlier. And what should come as a surprise to absolutely no one, the new building on the edge of town will be a new Dollar General. That's just what this town needed, reported no one. That's it for tonight's broadcast. For Constance Walker, I'm Charles Kenny. Good night, y'all. They are never gonna find my cat. <laughs> Breaking news. And if you know anything about the whereabouts of Mr. Pickles, And thank you, It's a Southern Thing channel, and it's not gossip if we call it news. And coming up next on Arts Express, there just aren't many movies like this, if any. It is said much too often than it should be that filmmakers of conscience step in where the nightly news and corporate media fear to tread. Such could not be more true and essential than the theatrical release of Kevin MacDonald's The Mauritanian a horror movie in every sense of the word, except that it happens to be a true story. The Mauritanian traces the grueling decades-long struggle without trial, like so many others at Guantanamo, of Mohamedou Shahi's legal battle to win back his freedom from incarceration and torture at Guantanamo. French-Algerian actor Taha Rahim delivers a phenomenal performance as Shahi, along with Jodie Foster, as real-life ACLU lawyer Nancy Hollander, who stood by him all the way, no matter how discouraging. And Kevin MacDonald, whose diverse, award-winning filmmaking has included the music documentaries Whitney and Being Mick, along with the dramatic feature The King of Scotland, phones in from London to talk about the Mauritanian. First, some scenes from the film, then Kevin MacDonald. I've never been part of a conspiracy, but I'm starting to think this is what it must feel like to be on the outside of one. If 
you stray outside the designated areas, you will be removed from the island. It's recommended you wear a hijab when visiting your client. We've had incidents of inmates spitting at female lawyers. You want to represent the head recruiter for 9-11? Mohamedou Old Slahi, the Mauritanian held in Guantanamo. He recruited the guys who flew your friend's plane into the South Tower. He put those men on my husband's plane? I'm going to make him pay. In the event the detainee lunges for you, push back away from the table. We'll get in there as quick as we can. This is my associate. We wish to represent you. We are seeking the death penalty, but if we miss something, this guy goes home. Let's get to it. Call this number. Speak to my mother. Tell her, I don't know, something nice. The U.S. government is holding upwards of 700 prisoners in Guantanamo. Since when did we start locking people up without a trial in this country? That's a lot of case files. The prosecution won't show us the evidence they have against you. It's all redacted. You get a problem, take it up with the government. All my time here, I've been told you are guilty. Not for something that I have done, but because of suspicions and associations. I am innocent. He has been interrogated. He has been held against his will for six years without a single charge being laid against him. Doesn't it bother you at all working for someone like this? I'm not just defending him. I'm defending the rule of law. You haven't seen what I've seen. Where I'm from, in Mauritania, we know not to trust the police. But never did I believe that the United States of America would use fear and terror to control me. A couple of sleepless nights, that's all. I've never been part of a conspiracy, but I'm starting to think this is what it must feel like to be on the outside of me. You're ever thinking this, either wear the jersey or get off the field. You need to tell me what happened to you. I can't defend you. Do you understand that? You asked me to set fire to this place, but I'm still sitting. Maybe he's guilty. Maybe he is. We're doing our job. I'm not welcome home. That's not a part of my job. If I'm wrong, when it comes to my reckoning, I'm the one that'll have to answer for it. What makes you think you're any better than the rest of us? I don't think I'm better than anybody else. That is the point. For eight years, I have been dreaming of being in a courtroom. Now that I'm here, I'm scared to death. You know, I think I figured out why they built Guantanamo down there. My client, he's not a suspect. He's a witness. Mr. Slahi, would you please raise your right hand and repeat after me? Hi. Hello and welcome. Very nice to be here with you. And where are you calling from? I am in London, England, where it's pouring with rain. <laughs> okay. What led you to want to make a film about Mohamedou Slahi and about Guantanamo? Well, really what I wanted to do was to make a film about this extraordinary man, about Mohamedou Slahi. Um, I spoke to him on Skype about three years ago, three and a half years ago. He'd only just got out of Guantanamo at that period, and I expected that I would be speaking to an angry, resentful guy. Instead, I got a warm, very funny, an incredibly forgiving person. And I, I was so struck by him. He felt to me like one of the most remarkable people I've ever met in my life. He's like a sort of Nelson Mandela figure. And I thought, I have to make a film about this man. This is, this is a side to the war on terror that we've never seen. We've never seen it from a Muslim perspective. We've never seen it from the perspective of a man who's been innocently imprisoned. And, uh, you know, that was the origins of it all. And what were the challenges for you of making this film in terms of roadblocks put in your way or any personal threats to you? Um, uh, well, the challenges really were how to tell such a complex story, which is a legal story and a story of, you know, evidence that may or may not exist against this man. So there's a lot of facts, a lot of exposition, and it takes us over a number of years, you know, so it, it, he was in prison for 14 and a half years in Guantanamo. So um, to try and find a way that, you know, narrative films require simplicity and to, and to find a way to make this story simple enough that it would work as a film and also emotional in the way that we want it to be, 
think that was the real that was the real challenge. But I never had any roadblocks from officials because this is controversial material or whatever. Because Mahmoud had written his book a number of years ago, and also all the evidence about what the U.S. government got up to with him and with other prisoners in Guantanamo was also released in various uh, uh, court orders. So we, 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 there's nothing that's being hidden, as it were. And any attacks against you after the film was released? Well, you know, surprisingly, very, very few, because I think this is not a political film. It's a, it, it's a, it which may sound like a strange thing to say, because it's about Guantanamo, but it's really a human film. It's about, a, it's about this beautiful man and how his spirit remains unbroken through the horrors that he experiences. And I think, again, people will find it uplifting at the end. You know, it's, 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 it's a very, it's a very uh, warm and uplifting and inspiring ending to the movie. Um, so, so, no, I don't think, we haven't been attacked that much. Obviously, there's a few, predictably a few people from the military, et cetera, who have attacked the film. But actually, you know, I don't feel like, um, those attacks have been in any way justified because, you know, one of the main characters in this, one of the heroic people in it, is a military lawyer, Stuart Couch, played by Benedict Cumberbatch, and he is, you know, portrayed in a very, very positive light. And what was it that inspired Jodie Foster to want her to portray Hollander in the movie? Well, Jodie doesn't act much anymore. And as she said to me, you know, I'm just really picky about what I do because I don't want to do anything that's repeating what I've done before. And so she saw something in this character in Nancy Hunger that was fresh to her, that was different. Part of that, I think, was just that she'd never played a real person before. She's also, I think, never done a film which is uh, uh, about a controversial subject. But she saw in Nancy there's something about this, the doggedness of this character, the way that she doesn't involve her kind of emotions and her personal life in her job. Um, and in fact, Jody was always very encouraging to me to you know, take, out the, take out the personal stuff, make this about me as a lawyer, me as a lawyer. And people will know because of my performance, they'll know who I am as a person. And I thought that was a really interesting and wise piece of advice, actually, and I followed through on it. And what is it about Jodie Foster that you saw her as the right person to play famed civil rights attorney Nancy Hollander? Well, she's obviously just a brilliant actress and she's a brilliant movie actress. You know, everything that goes on with Jodie is happening in her face in close up. And uh, she makes you believe and understand a person in this, you know, within a few seconds of, of, of meeting them. And, um, but what specifically drew me to her uh, was that I saw this character as being kind of like an older Clary Starling. You know, she's somebody who is very tough on the, ex on the exterior, right? kind of brittle, but inside you can sense that there's somebody who's a little broken, mm. a little vulnerable, but she doesn't let you inside very easily. And so that, that, that quality that Jodie does so well in her performance, I thought, that's what I want for this, for this person. Did your thinking and perspective about these prisoners and about Guantanamo change in any way in the course of making this film? Well, I think there's something about when you actually see actors on a set reenacting something that makes it real to you in a way that when you're reading about it, it doesn't, or you're hearing somebody talking about it, it doesn't, which is why to make a movie in the first place, I guess. And um, so I remember one day on the set, we were reenacting something. I think it was just him being chained up, you know, with the chains all around his legs and his arms and being led by all these soldiers down the corridor. And I, I, it suddenly became so real to me. And I saw blood on his ankles because Tahar Rahim, the actor who plays Muhammadu, insisted on wearing real shackles. Mm. And those real shackles within, you know, seconds of wearing them, they're, 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 they're making you bleed. You know, they're wearing away at your skin and um it suddenly all became very yeah very very real to me and you and you can't help but then sympathize empathize and that's what movies are for you know movies are the ultimate empathy machines and i want an audience to empathize with someone who they might think i could never i could never like that man i could never like a, a muslim man accused of terrorism
And what is going on with Slahi's situation and his life right now? And has the film affected him and his situation since its release? Uh, well, Mohamedou is in Mauritania, where he's from. He um, would like to be able to travel. He'd like to be able to, you know, publicize the movie, publicize his books that he's written, do talks and this kind of thing. But he is on a lot of no-fly lists. I mean, obviously, COVID has not helped, but sure. he's on a lot of no-fly lists. Um, and the American government is still, uh, or maybe it's not the American government, if individuals within the American establishment, maybe put it like that, are making sure that his life is very difficult and causing problems with him and his, his wife. He has, he's recently married a, a, an American lawyer who he got to know a few years ago, and they have a child together. And the lawyer, she lives in Berlin because she, 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 she doesn't want to live in Mauritania. And it's a very tough desert country. And, uh, but Mohamedou is not allowed to go to Germany. So, you know, his life is still curtailed. He's still a prisoner in some ways. He's still being punished for something that he didn't do. Um, so the injustice continues. What have been the reactions so far of Slahi and Highlander to seeing your film and the portrayals in the film? Both Nancy Hollander and uh, Mohamedou love the film. And they worked very, very hard to get it made and to help publicize it. They're both still doing every every day or every few days. They're doing Q and A's and interviews, and and they see it as a great tool to get his story to be known, and and also have the story of Guantanamo and what really happened there, and 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 the plight of the other prisoners who are still there. They they see this as a tool to maybe even help in a small way close Guantanamo finally. Now, did making the Mauritanian affect you or change you in any way as a person and a filmmaker? Uh, did it change me? Well, you know, when you, when you spend a lot of time in a world that is not your own, um, it's a great privilege. It's one of the things I love about making movies, that making documentaries and making movies, that you get to become a sort of expert for a year or a couple of years yeah. in a subject. And usually you're left, it does change you in some small way. But in this case, it really has shifted my thinking um, in terms of Islam, in terms of understanding more about what, um, uh, what drove America to do the things that it did back then and how easy it is to see those, that situation replicating itself elsewhere in the world. Um, so I think, you know, it's, it's movies help you understand the world and um, understand people and empathize with people. And, that, and that's, um, that's been the, the, the result for me, certainly, of this movie. Mm. What are your hopes for Guantanamo and the people being held there? Uh, well, as you know, there's over 40 people still there. Uh, they are divided into two categories. There's, there's one half of people who are, um, you know, probably never going to be released from prison. Uh, even if they haven't seen, they haven't uh, uh, had a trial. Uh, and there's another Catholic prisoner who, like Mohamedou, there's probably about 20 of them who are almost certainly innocent and who have got there under false circumstances. Um, and uh, and those people should be released immediately. They should have been released a long time ago. But because of, I guess, embarrassment on the part of the DOD um, and uh, uh, political difficulties, you know, for instance, that, that, that Obama felt he couldn't, for political reasons, release the prisoners. But those people are still there, and um, they should be released. And is there anything you're working on next, or would like to be working on? No, not at the moment. I'm, uh, I'm taking a little break. I've been very busy doing this film, and I've done a couple of little documentaries here in the UK. And I'm uh, uh, having a little break, which is a nice thing. Now, what would you hope your film conveys to audiences, Americans on the one hand, and also audiences outside this country? Well, I hope that the movie entertains people, first and foremost, because I think, you know, one thing we haven't mentioned is that it is intended to be a piece of entertainment, but obviously with some serious themes in it. Um, but it's a it's a it's a legal thriller. It's got great performances. It's got twists and turns, um, and I think at the end it's very emotional and very in inspiring. Um, so I hope that's that's what audiences take out of it. Um, 
And uh, I think around the world, it's interesting. The movie's played a lot in the Middle East, and of course, for them, it's been a, it's a, it's a, it's a, a even more emotional experience to see this movie. Partly because there just aren't many movies like this, if any movies, mainstream films coming from the English-speaking world, which have sympathetic Muslim characters in, 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 at the center of them. And uh, so I think a lot of people have been in the Muslim world and in, and, and in the Arabic world have been really, really. Uh, excited by the movie and by its existence. And you've made both documentaries and dramas, so why a drama with the Mauritanian? Because I think that with a documentary, uh, you're always just with somebody who's talking or reliving their past. You're not in it. You're not experiencing it. And to me, this felt like it's a story which needs to be experienced. So... um, uh, uh, that's what movies can do. They can, they can, you know, put you into a world, make you sympathize with characters, um, make you feel for them, and that is not so easy to do in a documentary. Okay, thank you so much, Kevin McDonald, for calling into our show, and I will get the word out about this extraordinary film. Thank you very much. Nice to talk to you. And the Mauritanian is out now in release and on DVD. Oh, yeah. Hey, man. Listen, whenever I'm in New York, I'm Tommy Chong. I kind of created Teaching Chong. And I listen to Arts Express nonstop because it's the only show that really tells you what's going on in the city. Arts Express. You've been a lot of places, haven't you? One too many. Which did you like the best? This one right here. Bet you said that to all the places. Please tell me, Jeff. Well, our friend Markham lived in New York. He worked with a sort of stupid, oily gent by the name of Jack Fisher. We called ourselves detectives. Find her, Jeff. Bring her back. What happens to her? I won't touch her. Okay. Oh, by the way, you mind telling me your name? Kathy Moffat. Thanks. And then I saw her coming out of the sun. And I knew why we didn't care about that 40 grand. I could have run away last night. I'd find you. Yes, I believe you would. You're glad you did? I don't know. I didn't know what I was doing. I I didn't know anything except how much I hated. But I didn't take anything. I didn't, Jen. Don't you believe me? Baby, I don't care. Beat it. Look at all the angles. You know what, and you know how far he can reach. So just pay me off and I'm quiet. But use cash. Don't try to pay me off with pitch handed to you with this cheap piece of baggage. They say you killed a man. Do you believe him? Not until you tell me. You believe everything I say, don't you? Everything you say to me, I believe. You know, a dame with a rod is like a guy with a knitting needle. What's he doing here? 
And those were scenes from the 1947 noir classic Out of the Past, or as titled in the UK back then, Build My Gallows High, with its face-off starring Kirk Douglas and Robert Mitchum. And our guest, Jeff Fahey, phoning in from Austin, Texas, will be talking about memories of working with the late Robert Mitchum on Women of Desire, and Anthony Perkins, who directed Fahey in Psycho 3, along with Fahey's current thriller, Locked In. Here's Jeff Fahey. Hi, Prairie. Hello, and welcome. I hear you just flew in from the Caribbean. Are you making a film down there? Yeah, I did a couple films down in uh, Nevis, which is in the St. Kitts Nevis Federation. Um, so I was down there, uh, just finished uh, two films uh, back-to-back. So I was down in the islands uh, for 13 weeks. I mean, phew, what oh. a blessing to be down there, yeah. And what are the films? Uh, the... Well, one is called um, one is called uh, One Year Off, and the other has a working title, which um, I'll have my manager get to you on that. I, I'm in Austin. I love Austin. I do a lot of work down here you know, with Robert Rodriguez and Elizabeth Avion. Ah. What was it about Locked In that got you on board? Well, I'll tell you. It, first of all, it was it was the writer director Carlos Guterres who I had a conversation with, and he talked to me about the story, and um, and then sent me the script, and I had to read. And what I loved about it was that it was this thriller that takes place in a self-contained environment, mm-hmm. all within a storage facility. And uh, without giving anything away, it, it's, a, it's an action thriller, Diamond Heist Gone Wrong, and uh, Mina Savari and her daughter, played by uh, Jasper Polish, uh, two wonderful actresses, uh, they are in the, in the facility, and myself with a great actor, Manny Perez and Bruno Bashir and Costas Mandalar, I'm looking for my diamonds, and they're looking to stay alive. Hmm. That's what this story is. But it was the way Carlos pitched it to me, that he wanted to shoot it kind of like a, a, a genre, 1970s, character-driven piece, fast-paced and self-contained. Um, that really got me aboard. And how would you say it's different for you battling women, as in this film, as opposed to just the usual male-against-male combat? Well, they always win. <laughs> no, honestly, it, uh, it was... It, actually, I, I didn't necessarily look at it that way. It, it, for me, it was it, it was another situation where you had uh, good guy, bad guy uh, uh, survival, or good person, bad person survival. But I do like the idea uh, that, that it is a mother, it's a single mother and a daughter striving uh, and struggling to, to stay afloat uh, who end up becoming the heroes of, of the story. Um, and, and I say that uh, because any good thriller, uh, when it's put together, uh, and the, well, I don't want to give it away, but uh, as we know, when the, the good guys uh, hopefully uh, make it in the end, and uh, it was great to see that, uh, that strength uh, driven by the intelligence and survival instincts of um, a mother and her daughter. And where do you go inside yourself to play mean and scary people? I flip it. <laughs> I flip it around and, and have fun with it, with the imagination, and, and, and try to stay away from the reality, but uh, just let the, the imagination uh, sort of fly within the story. In other words, uh, I always try to, and it's not necessarily uh, it, within this character in Locked In, but if there's a, if there's opportunity, I try to put a tiny little bit of humor in, in, in the, uh, the antagonist and the bad guy, if you will. Although it, uh, it didn't lend itself, um, the opportunity didn't lend itself in Locked In, but, uh, where do I go? I think, uh, also I, I take little bits and pieces of all the great bad guys in, in all the films from the thirties, forties and fifties. And speaking of which, what are your memories of Anthony Perkins, and what was it like being directed by him on Psycho 3? 
Well, first of all, he was a great guy, really nice, really wonderful, generous uh, uh, director. And but I will say this: uh, when I was working with him, and then we were we were there on the the back lot and Universal at, at the original hotel motel rather. And the original house, you know, is still there on the back lot. And then when we were filming there, and I forget the first day we started filming on location. And <laughs> if you remember, he was directing that mm. that film also. Yeah. So you're talking to him as the director and as the actor, Anthony Perkins, and he's talking this and that. And then when he said action, and for the first time I saw him, turn into Norman, mm. it was quite scary. <laughs> I mean, it was it was amazing that he actually, because he hadn't done it in front of me yet. We were just, you know, we were talking about the script, and when, when we were in the preparation period, we didn't actually rehearse as actors. He had he had the actors sit around and read the lines, but he, you never saw, you never saw the Norman Bates. You only saw Anthony. Mm. I'll never forget that first day when you know he had the first the first ad the first assistant director call action and he just on a dime turned into norman bates it mm. was freaky mm. yeah and what about your memories of robert mitchum and working with him oh i loved robert I loved, he and i became very close yeah loved 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 yeah bob was great i mean just yeah yeah I still still miss him. And what are your memories of him? Well, it just uh, uh, you know you, we uh, hopefully uh, pick up a lot of the the great wonderful habits and, and and characteristics of the the people we meet and the people we work with mm-hmm. in life, and uh, and you know push away from the bad cats and the bad uh, jazz, as it were. I got a lot of my great stuff from from uh, Bob Mitchum, mm-hmm. and it was the, the approach to the work. And he had a very sort of relaxed and casual approach, but yet it had deep thought, complete commitment. But uh, it had this very relaxed approach, and it's one of the things I got from Bob. And 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 to um, and to appreciate how lucky we are. Yeah. To to be. He always said. Hell of a way to make a million, <laughs> and and uh, and he was very casual about uh, and respectful about the work, but uh, never took it too seriously. Mm. But yet committed to the character and to the story a thousand percent. Mm. You know, my memories of Bob. And any last word to share about Locked In? Well, I think uh, that one of the fascinating things about this particular story is. Uh, how everyone uh, at some point over this last year has felt a bit claustrophobic mm-hmm. and a bit mm-hmm. locked in, if you will, no pun intended, but eh. that this film, because of it, it it does have a bit of claustrophobic feeling to it, but it, it, it's, a, it's a thriller with action and, and a, as I said before, a heist gone wrong um, it, in the self-contained area. I think it's fascinating what the writer director did with this to keep to, to keep us engaged as an audience uh, within a storage facility because there's only so much you can do in there, you know, with with the lighting, with the camera angles, mm-hmm. and I think the, uh, this story uh, pulls it off and keeps it on the front foot, uh, and it's a, a tightly wound uh, action thriller. Okay, thank you so much, Jeff Fahey, for calling into our show. All right. Thank you so much, Prairie. Thank you. Bye. All right. And Locked In is out now in theatrical release. And next up on the show... My analyst told me that I was right out of my head the way he described it. He said I'd be better dead than live. I didn't listen to his jive. I knew all along he was all wrong and I knew that he thought... told me that I was right out of my head. He said I need treatment, but I'm not that easily led. He said I was the type that was most inclined, went out of his sight to be out of my mind. And he thought I was nuts, no more ifs or ands or buts, oh no. Hi, this is Jack Shalom. 
Last week in part one, we spoke with Olivia Lang about her fascinating new book, Everybody. It's a book about the work of psychologist Wilhelm Reich and the expanding influence his ideas had, especially that of character armor, that is, the idea that our emotional memories are physically retained within the musculature of our bodies. Reich had a turbulent life, combining ideas from Freud and Marx, much to the discomfort of followers of both, and when he escaped Nazi Germany to America, he was hounded and imprisoned by the FDA for his theories about what Reich called the orgone, the life energy that supposedly inhabited the universe, and which could be collected, Reich maintained, in orgone boxes. Last week we ended by my asking Olivia Lang whether Reich had gone over the deep end. And now part two. Olivia, Reich lost his bearings in a way. I mean, he kind of went a little crazy. Was it inevitable? Was his own past so disturbed that it was bound to come back and disturb him? Or or was he releasing what should have been repressed too quickly? What what was going on with him? Again, I don't think we'll ever know exactly, but my feeling about it is that the breach with Freud really harmed him. You know, people who Freud broke off with ended up killing themselves. The the sense wow. of that beloved father who suddenly turns against you. And when Freud turned, he really would turn on people. I think that was heartbreaking for Reich. I think Reich underwent a kind of trauma with what happened to his mother that he never really dealt with. So I think there was a lot of painful material ricocheting around inside him. And then I think he really had the misfortune to have ideas that people find profoundly unsettling. I think if you start talking about sex and sexuality, Mm -hmm. people get very angsty about it. And I think really a lot of what the FDA were doing, it wasn't about him being a pseudoscientist. It really was this idea that he was up to some kind of sex racket. You can see it in their vast correspondence about the case that they thought that there was nudity. They thought that there was pornography, all things that were really kind of anathema to Reich. In some ways, he was quite a Puritan sexual liberationist. He wasn't very into pornography. He wasn't very into free love. You know, we haven't come to his end yet, but he ended up dying in a prison cell, which is the most tragic end you can imagine for somebody who fought for freedom and fought for bodily freedom, fought for joyous bodily freedom throughout his life. Well, Reich's influence was wide. And in some ways, your book is a meditation on the people he influenced either directly or indirectly with his ideas. Kate Millett, Susan Sontag, James Baldwin were all reading him, and many more important thinkers and artists were directly or indirectly influenced by him. Let's follow one of those associative streams for a bit. What did feminists Kate Millett and Andrea Dworkin find in Reich that intrigued them? I think Dworkin says it so beautifully. He was the only sexual liberationist who abhorred rape, really. And I think that just sums up what, what is there for Reich really for now, is that he was somebody who really thought about women, women's bodies, women's pleasure, and the dangers women face. He was very much a pro-abortion activist. He wanted women to have the right to abortion. He wanted women to have the rights to their own bodies. And he talks about that in terms that sound startlingly modern now. And I think for people like Dworkin, that was something to draw on. You know, she's somebody who was very invested in writing about violence to women, domestic violence, and especially rape. And to find somebody from the generation before who was talking about those sort of ideas and who'd been active in those kind of movements, I think was electrifying for her. Well, you you say this, which I thought was a really interesting viewpoint, that women's liberation in the 1970s was not so much liberation to, but liberation from. And certainly... Dworkin and others were talking about liberation from sexual violence, in a way that the split between Reich and Freud was being replicated, is sex a liberatory force or a destructive one that needs to be reined in? There there always seems to be that tension. I think Reich is actually a little bit more complicated than you're maybe giving him credit for there, because I think he did understand that under patriarchal capitalism, as he would put it, Mm -hmm. that sexual violence was absolutely present. And his Mm. vision was a world that didn't have that. Freud thought that that was innate to humans. And Reich didn't think that. Reich is very utopian. He has almost an innocence about him. 
he thinks that it is possible that there could be a world without violence, which I don't know if I agree with him there, but I certainly find it very moving. So I think this is what Dworkin found so helpful about him is that he he knew what women's lives were like. He knew what women's bodily lives were like. And he testified to that in a way that most people weren't interested. Freud certainly doesn't get into that sort of nitty gritty aspect. He's much more interested in talking about women's fantasies or women's hysterias, but not what their actual lives are like, if they're poor, if they've been raped, Mm -hmm. if there's incest in their family, all of these different things that Wright really does talk about. Uh James Baldwin and Foucault say that if if orgasms were everything, then why isn't capitalism toppled? (laughs) Absolutely. But I think, I mean, the orgasms are everything argument isn't really Reich's argument. That's Uh the way that uh he's been remembered. And that's the way that... misconstrued. Yeah. And his followers, you know, after his death, I think he had the misfortune in a way to be taken up by people like Norman Mailer, who were really like the orgasm is the only thing. And I I think Mm -hmm. Reich's actually, when you go back and look at him again, his writing is a bit more subtle than that. I think Mm -hmm. like many thinkers, once you've died, you're kind of in the hands of your disciples. So you really have to hope that they've read you well, because if they haven't, then that's how you're preserved in history. Well, Reich was preserved in in many body therapies that followed, right? Mm. I think Alexander Lowen with the bioenergetics and uh, Rolf uh, with the Rolf thing. And uh, there's no shortage of people that followed Reich or built on Reich's ideas. Um, They're fascinating ideas. But Reich, as he said, tragically, he he dies in prison, which is uh, sort of the ultimate denial of the body. And and the political world can put bodies into prisons, but bodies can also reshape the world. And you spent a good part of your youth uh, putting your body on the line. What was that like? It was really interesting. I was in my early 20s and I was, you know, very concerned about climate change and about the despoilation of the natural world, I guess. And at the time, um, there was a huge amount of road building in Britain. So a lot of ancient woodlands were being affected by that. And there was a sort of mass movement of people moving into trees, living in trees in the path of road projects, setting up camps and Mm -hmm. trying to prevent them from being cut down. And I got involved in that. And it was, um, it was an incredible experience. It was in a lot of ways, a very liberating experience, but it was also incredibly grueling to be at the sharp end of that sort of activism. And I experienced, as many environmental activists, many activists of different stripes do, real burnout at the end of that period and went through a period of intense depression. And, you know, I look back and think it's a tragedy that, again, these issues are still so live that nothing has changed about climate change. And that was over 25 years ago. Was it scary? Yeah, it was scary, but it was also exhilarating. It was it was extraordinary to get to live that close to nature. It was amazing to climb up into a tree and go to sleep at night. It felt like mm-hmm. almost a fairy tale life in some ways, but then again, very frightening. And the kind of policing at that time was very adversarial and aggressive. So, yeah, it was a difficult it was a difficult period. Mm. Something that really strikes me. You talk before about the English laws that in May 1988, uh, there were laws barring the government from promoting the acceptability of homosexuality in state schools. And and now, only 25 years later, and that's the blink of an eye historically, something that I thought I would never see in my lifetime was the legalization of gay marriage. How did it happen so quickly? How did attitudes towards the body change so quickly? Well, two things, I think. their bodies on the streets and the AIDS crisis, because I think the AIDS crisis made a huge amount of people realise that actually they did know gay people. Those gay people had been closeted, and it made people realise that gay people were everywhere. They knew them. They were their relatives. They were their neighbours. And I think that began to change things. But, you know, Things improve, and that's wonderful, but at the same time, laws are constantly being rolled back. The treatment of trans kids at the moment in America is mm-hmm. extraordinarily violent and distressing. And I mean, also with what's happening around race in America and in England, the Black Lives Matter movement, it, it requires endless protest for anything to change about the treatment of people's bodies. 
You have a chapter on the great singer Nina Simone, um, surely a great artist, and you you kind of make the case that an artist of Simone's caliber performs the Reichian function of opening up the body, of making it more aware, more accepting, more able to feel, both for the audience and, and the artist. I mean, you have a section where uh, Nina Simone is explaining how she feels when she's really, you know, at her peak, that she just feels that the energy is flowing through her body. Do you think that's true of, of other kinds of artists? Well, it's so interesting to have this conversation at the end of the COVID lockdown period where none of mm. us have been having those experiences of going to performance. And yeah, I think all kinds of performers do it. I think it can happen in theatre. I think it can happen in opera and ballet. What it requires is bodies in front of bodies. I think the performer's body does something. They go somewhere for the rest of us, somewhere transcendental, somewhere cathartic, somewhere that allows us um, the scope and the room to feel our deeper levels of feelings. And I don't know about you, but I feel such intense craving to go back into those sort of spaces. And I think when we are allowed back into those you know, sacred rooms, that it's going to be more cathartic than ever before. Yeah, just the hunger for another body, for bodies in general is really, we feel the lack of it so much right now. Absolutely, absolutely. And I was thinking too about, you had mentioned uh, that Nina Simone was very influenced and friendly with uh, Lorraine Hansberry. Mm. And I was thinking about the last lines of a Lorraine Hansberry play, The Sign in Sidney Brewstein's Window. It's not as well known as A Raisin in the Sun. But the last few lines, there's a, there's a husband who's saying to his wife, the main character is saying to his grieving wife, whose younger sister has died, he says something like, cry, cry, my darling, that's the first thing we must do to feel again, and tomorrow we'll make something strong of this sorrow. And uh, Well, that's Reich in a nutshell, really. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I feel like his ideas were sort of running quite freely through that time that you do pick up on really the deepest aspect or the, the most moving aspect of his ideas in people like Baldwin, in people like Nina Simone. And that, that absolutely encapsulates it, that it's a sort of message about feeling what is truly there in the body, feeling the griefs, feeling the rage that are to do with not just our solo individual lives but our communal lives the communal experiences that we have behind because of the kind of bodies we live in and that once that feeling is liquefied once it's allowed to move freely then we become powerful in our bodies and then we can make a change to the world yeah this may may sound kind of negative but i've kind of observed that so many who have sought obsessively for bodily freedom have died sadly, often mentally ill or poor or abandoned. Is that a consequence of their refusal to believe that there can be no such thing as total bodily freedom? Is that a romantic uh, fantasy from Rousseau that uh, leads us in the wrong direction? I think often those people are not looking for absolute bodily freedom in a sort of mucky de sard way as a communal bodily freedom. And I think what happens to them is despair. I think the struggle for liberation is intensely difficult. And the people who are at the forefront of it, and so many of the people in this book, Andrea Dworkin, Reich himself, Malcolm X, all, all kinds of figures end up dying young, dying in sorrow. And yeah. the work is hard. And I think, you know, that that is very difficult to grapple with. And what I wanted to show with this book, if if anything, was that work also exceeds us. It goes on beyond our lifespans. And I think giving way to despair is what destroys freedom movements. And I think if we remember that all we have to do is play our part in them, then we can continue with something like hope. Hmm. If you allow me to free associate for a moment, as I was reading your book, I was thinking about how actors have long been powered by the desire to escape their bodies, the contortions of a Lon Chaney or a Robert De Niro or Paul Muni, and then the uh, movements in the 60s with the Polish lab actors and Jerzy Grotowski and the living theaters experiments. I, I would love one day to trace Reich's influence on actors because I think they've been sort of on the same trail for a long time also. It 
It's so interesting you say that because I think all the time when I'm trying to explain to people what character armor is, we all know what character armor is because it is how actors act for us. That is what they're doing when they're embodying a new character. They're taking on the character armor of that person and Mm -hmm. that's how we pick up who that person is. So whether they're doing that instinctively or whether they do know about Reikian work, I think it's a way of making it very visible to us. Well, I think uh, our listeners will really enjoy the book. It's it's a fascinating book, and Reich is really interesting. And you've chosen a good half dozen other people besides Reich to focus on. It's a, a wonderful look at the idea that we are just bodies and part of the material world. Yeah, and we've got to do something with the time where we're here. We've got to do something <laughs> with those bodies. Well, thank you, Olivia. It's been a pleasure. I've been talking with art and social critic Olivia Lang, author of the new book, Everybody, published by W.W. Norton, a book about freedom. Olivia Lang is also the author of four works of nonfiction, including Funny Weather and the novel Crudo. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.